Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. So I worked, like I said, uh, at Universal Studios, and that's where I got on laughing if we go back. It's when, when I was working at Universal Studios, Tiny Tim made it big, and I went, well, if this guy can make it, I, maybe I can make it. So I, this is how innocent I was. So I called up laughing, and I asked on the phone, on, I called, I said, and I asked if I could speak to the producer of laughing. And this guy, uh, uh, George Slaughter, gets on the line. But uh, so, I, uh, so I said, I'd like to get on your show. He says, really, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm working on this impression of a fork. And uh, he said, a fork. He said, uh, can you come down tomorrow? And I go and I said, here's my impression of a fork. And I stand there and do that. And they all just looked at me and they said, all right, thank you. Next day, get a call. Laugh and report on Wednesday, 1 p.m. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm very, very, very excited about the episode today with Murray Langston, a.k.a. the Unknown Comic. Before I get started, I want to thank you guys again, Broken Record Me, for all you do and all of your support. And for those of you who are here for the first time, welcome I know you're going to like this episode a lot, and if you get past the sound of my voice, hopefully you'll make it to many, many more. If you need to reach me, you can do so at BarryCats at Instagram or Twitter, or you can go to BarryCats.com, and I will get back to you as soon as I possibly can. And now, without further ado, let me introduce our guest and get things going. You're really going to enjoy this episode. Murray Langston, a.k.a. The Unknown Comic, is a bags-to-riches story of a young boy who left the comfort of freezing temperatures in Canada and headed to California to get into show business. In his early 20s, after having worked various shitty jobs waiting for his break, he finally landed an appearance on the hugely successful Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In as beautiful Burbank's greatest impressionist with his impersonation of a fork and a tube of toothpaste. It didn't make him a lot of money or a household name, but a few years later, Murray became a regular performer on the Sonny and Cher show, which lasted for four and a half years and led to other comedy acting jobs on several other hit TV shows, such as The Bobby Vinton Show, The Wolfman Jack Show, The Lola Falana Show, and The Hudson Brothers Kid Show. On a break from those shows, Murray decided to take some of his earnings and invest it in a nightclub restaurant, which he called Showbiz where many aspiring performers began their careers, among them Michael Keaton, David Letterman, Gallagher, and Deborah Winger, who worked for him as a waitress. Unfortunately, after two years, Murray lost all of his investment and was out of a job, out of money, out of the club, and wondering where to turn next. 
He heard of a show called The Gong Show, which, if you were in the union, paid scale to union members. And since Murray was a union member, but not wanting anyone to know he was suddenly desperate, he came up with the idea of putting a bag over his head, telling a couple of corny jokes, and calling himself the unknown comic. He only meant to do one show, but the audience and the host, Chuck Barris, thought he was so funny that he was asked to repeat his performance in over 150 future episodes. His sudden celebrity and fame led to appearances on every talk show of that era, from Merv Griffin to Mike Douglas to Dinah Shore to Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. Within a year, Murray created a comedy act that was suddenly appearing in Las Vegas at the Sahara Hotel and subsequently ended up appearing at just about every hotel on the Strip. Murray became the first comedian in Las Vegas to hire two other comics to open for him, appearing with his all-comedy show, first at the Landmark, then the Hacienda, then the Dunes, long before other comedy clubs showcased comedians on the strip. Murray decided to then move into another direction and wrote and produced his own movie about the homeless called Up Your Alley, followed by another film which he directed called Wishful Thinking. And he later also directed a critically acclaimed play called Run For Your Wife. Ladies and gentlemen, what an honor, what a pleasure, a legend. Please welcome the unknown comic, a.k.a. Murray Langston. A.k.a. Murray Langston, also known as, yeah, as, well, nice to be here, Larry. Barry. Barry, Harry. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Of course, I know your, your name. Anyway, thank you for inviting me on the show. As I mentioned, I just rarely do this kind of stuff anymore, and uh, but so it's comfortable. We're in my daughter's closet if anybody's not aware of this is actually so after we finish we'll all be uh, coming out of the closet together <laughs> is that a cool thing or what yeah well i met a friend of yours really 420 comic do you know who that is oh uh, yeah mr p well he's not a he, i get him from rent a friend you know he, he charges <laughs> me like 15 bucks you don't hour. even know his name that's uh, jeffrey peterson that's no what? actually i did a thing years ago in in uh Denver and uh, and he uh, opened for me. Him and some other guy. I did I did some show there. Yeah. So I haven't seen him since then. But the 420 comic, the drug guy. You know? yeah. I don't do drugs, by the way. You know, I never have. I've never been in the drugs. The people always thought I was, especially at the height of my career when I was doing my show. You know, I just never got into drugs. Isn't that weird to be in this business? Back then, the first time, let's say you were in Vegas, was what year? God, let me in the 70s. It was like, uh, okay. yeah. So in the 70s and you're in the scene, you're doing comedy at the different clubs. Were there a lot of comedians that, let's say, are retired now that shocked you the kind of drugs they did? And what kind of drugs were people doing when you started? Well, you know, it was my musicians that were doing all the drugs because people would be handing me drugs after my shows, but I had three musicians. Back in the day, I worked a lounge at the Sahara, which was my main thing back after, when I created The Unknown Comic, I got offered a gig there for years. But before The Unknown Comic. Oh, uh, before The Unknown Comic. I in just... the late 60s, what kind of drugs were people doing? Well, it's because oh, as I mentioned, I started out with Cheech and Chong before they were anybody. So they were obviously smoking weed. Smoking weed, and they'd bring. Uh, they, we worked a little club called Canopos on Sunset Strip together, uh, but I was part of a comedy team back then called Jack and Murray. I was trying to, you know, I was influenced by Martin and Lewis. So, and so, who was the Jack? Uh, Jack was this tall, uh, sort of looked a lot like uh, uh, like uh, Bud Abbott. Was he a straight man? He, he was the straight man, yeah. And uh, and I was the uh, the comic and uh, Cheech and Chong. We worked this little place for hamburger night, and yeah, they used to, they were doing their drugs. But you know, it's weird because. Uh, I've only been drunk once in my life. That's when I was in the military. And I've never, I, I just liked my life so much. I've always enjoyed every minute of it that I had no room for this fabricated happiness that drugs and getting drunk presented. I don't know why, but I just never had an interest. In fact, when I got out of the military and started hanging out in L.A. when I'd go to uh, parties, I would actually act like I was drunk 
just to participate or stone. Hey, guys, how you doing? It's nice to see you. But I would never get drunk, and I learned how to act being drunk, which later came in handy, because I just had no interest in uh, getting drunk or doing drugs. Who was the first comedian or artist you hung out with during those times that passed away because of drugs? Oh, jeez. Uh, well, well, we... I, I somehow fell into like uh, some of the biggies right away, like Red Fox. I started hanging out at his club, and he subsequently passed away. But, I, gee, I know so many comics. But I mean, I'm I talking got... about during that era, somebody who overdosed on drugs that you knew and you knew they were doing drugs and you couldn't stop it. Uh, dude, see, that's a good question. I, again, you know, like I used to hang out with Robin and a lot of those guys back you know Robin Williams, and uh, but obviously when you, you realize you're hanging out with guys that are getting loaded all the time, and I didn't do that, I just would go into another route. Most of the people I hung out with didn't do drugs. You know, Pat Paulson was one of my best buddies back then. You know, uh, uh, I'm talking about some of the older guys. Pat uh, Paulson who ran for president. Ran for president. We could use him today. Now could, Ben. Now yeah. Ben Gleave, a comedian, is running for president. Just announced his candidacy. Ben Gleave. Yes. You're kidding. Yes. Who's Ben Gleave? Ben Gleave is a comedian. He hosts a show called Idiot Test on Netflix. It's been on 200 episodes. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Good guy. I mean, talented guy. Yeah, he's yeah. a good guy, talented. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. The first thing I want to ask you is a lot of times artists are, or anybody in the world is involved in something they've trained for their whole life. Whether they're an accountant, they were trained their whole life, they do it, that's how they make their money or or whatever it is, or there's an actor who makes money and then decides, you know, I'm going to stop this acting, I'm going to direct. So you were doing comedy as Murray Langston. You had been in a number of television shows. You'd done many, many things. It could be argued that half of your television appearances were as Murray Langston. Yeah, most of my stuff. And so yeah. how did you make the decision to make that jump and was it a premeditated decision or was it something that was instantaneous so i want you to take me through how many days or weeks it was as murray langston before the idea popped in your head about the unknown comic and the bag where were you when it came to your head and how did it come about the unknown okay that's that's pretty easy basically basically I, as you mentioned i was on a lot of shows I, you know i st my first tv show was laughing that's how far back i go i was introduced as beautiful downtown burbank's greatest impressionist and i came out doing impression of a fork and a few other dumb impressions and i ended but i thought that was going to make me a big star because tiny timid made it big and, and it didn't do shit for me. I mean, I was walking around the street, you know, putting my hands up like a fork. Nobody recognized me at all, period. But anyway, so I, I, I spent a couple of years, you know, doing all the regular jobs, painting and, uh, you know, selling shoes and all kinds of different jobs. But I ended up hanging out at Red Fox's club, and I became his opening act, me and a bunch of people. Where was the club? On La Cienega. And Red Fox, uh, we, we became known as the Foxy Players. So me and this black guy named Freeman King, we did a bunch of sketches together. And uh, all everything filthy, you know, but, but it was fun. Because Red Fox was really, really blue, dirty he comedian. He was the then. blue comic of, the, of that era. He was like Def Jam before Def Jam. Yeah, probably. So in his club... The audiences that Red would bring in, were they primarily African-American audiences or were they mixed? It was mixed, but a lot of celebs hung out there because of Red, Like, uh, but they went to get their drugs. Again, <laughs> I mean, Flip Wilson was there all the time. Temptations were there all the time. All these big celebrities, black celebs were there because they were all doing drugs in the back. Got uh, it. Yeah, so if we're going back to and that. so And so Red's act was really, really raunchy, raunchy and oh, yeah. blue. But what I find today when there is a comedian that's raunchy and blue, let's say like somebody you might not know, like a Colin Kane or Dice Clay, who you know, well, women love that comedy and you watch the audience and you see these women laughing so hard and you're shocked. Back then when Red was doing the filthiest jokes, were the women laughing or was it more men that came to the club? It was a combination. No, the women were laughing. A lot of women were there. Uh, yeah, and uh, that's when that's when Red used to try to get me into drugs. He'd say, Murray, he said, come on, do some coke with me. You take this shit, you go home, you fuck your old lady, be great. And I said, but I don't have an old lady at home. You'll fuck the sink. 
it'll be the same. You know, I mean, he, that's, he was just a funny, funny guy off the top of his head. But he did try to get me in drugs in those early years, as I recall. But uh, I, again, I just didn't see it. I, everybody was doing it around me, but I just didn't didn't get it. But I wouldn't mind doing a joint now if you guys got one. <laughs> but, uh, so, so you're doing comedy. So we did comedy. We and got, you're not in the team then. You're doing comedy alone. Me and uh, Freeman are doing sketches together, and this agent, still remember her name, Sue Golden, uh, for some reason said they're doing the Sonny and Cher show. Uh, I can get you guys to audition for it. And uh, we went, what? And I was selling shoes at J.C. Penney's at this time. So me and Freeman, we go down, and this agent got us a, 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 an audition. We went before the, the producers, Chris Beard, Alan Bly. And you do how many sketches? We did three or four. They looked at us like, I mean, all we did was these dirty sketches. They didn't even react to us, you know. And they said, okay, uh, thanks, guys. And we knew there's all kinds of people going in all during the, you know, the following days or weeks. And a week later, I'm at Schwab's, the infamous Schwab's, where I used to hang out. And, wow. And, uh, Could you do our audience a favor? Because my mother used to talk about Schwab's to me <laughs> when I was a kid. So tell our audience what Schwab's drugstore was famous for. Well, uh, well, uh, uh, what's her name? Getting discovered? Uh, was it, who was it? Uh, Al, but everybody used to hang out there. Uh, I used to, comics I used to hang out with were... Uh, but, but why would people hang out at a drugstore? You had a counter where a lot of people ate at. A lot of celebrities would eat at. But then you had the back restaurant area. And that's where we used to all hang out. Guy, guys I have with were like Jackie Gale, uh, uh, you know, Lenny Bruce's mother, Sally Marr was but there why was the it time. famous for people getting discovered back then? Yeah, it wasn't Lana Turner. I suppose they got discovered yeah, I think there. So. I think it was her. Yeah, but I was actually there when, because uh, I was there, a regular there, so the, the, the cashier said, there's a phone call, and I get on the phone, and it's Freeman, my, my black buddy, he says, we got the show. And I'm like freaking out, jumping around and running around Schwab's, telling me, I got a Now you know, imagine our audience to hear this, okay? Yeah. Today, if somebody wants to reach you, you get a text, oh, yeah, an yeah, email, yeah, yeah, or yeah, a yeah. call on your cell phone. Yeah, yeah. Back then... People don't know where to find you. They give you the news. They're calling Schwab's, Schwab's drugstore. Drug I actually got called, yes, and it was crazy. And, uh, you know, like I said, I was selling shoes at the time, and so that all of a sudden you're on the show and a, uh, a national television show. Okay, so they say you got the show. They give you a contract. Who do you give the contract to to look over before you sign it? Do you have an agent? Well, do you we have had a manager? That, that agent, Sue Golden. I, I guess. got it. So it, Sue you know, Golden she, did she, the deal. She did the deal. Do you remember what the deal was? Oh, I was. We were paid like I think nine hundred a show episode. We went up to like fifteen hundred tops after and you, four years. So it was really did no you money. Split the nine hundred. Uh, or you get nine hundred each. Uh, no, no, we we got it was it was me and Freeman. There's five regulars on the show initially: me, Freeman, uh, uh, Billy Van, Ted Ziegler, uh, and uh, Peter Cullen, and one girl, Terry Gar. You know the actress. So uh, next four and a half years, that was my job, working with everybody. How in many the business. episodes a year? Twenty-two, as I recall. So you know, eighty, and, and then. Uh, so you're making about twenty thousand a year. So Twenty-five, thirty thousand a year. Yeah, somewhere. With, yeah, yeah. And that made the personal appearances bigger. Did you do personal appearances alone, or how did you do No, that? we didn't really have any back then. You know, the the, the, the producers are smart, because they learn off of laughing. Our names were always at the end of the show. Also appearing on the show was Freeman King, Murray Langston, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so they, they didn't want us to become too big, you know, and so they, they, they knew what they were doing. So uh, I don't know that we made a lot of money. Freeman and I went out a couple times, We because uh, we did some sketches, and we worked for Sonny and Cher a couple times, uh, opening for them at these huge venues. Uh, Sonny and Cher wanted you to do dirty comedy before them? No, no. We had to clean it up, obviously. Yeah. They used, not only us, they used Steve Martin. Steve Martin was one of the writers on the show, by the way, who also appeared in- He was a, a writer on Laugh-In. No, on, on, on Sonny, Sonny and Cher. Cher. Yeah, him and, uh, and uh, uh, who just, Bob Einstein, they were writing partners who just passed away, uh, sadly. Remember, he used to be Officer Judy. Uh, so they were there, yeah, and they and Steve appeared in a lot of the sketches with us too when they needed extra people. And um, uh, but you never put a nightclub act together with Freeman that was an hour. We did, we did put it. Uh, you know, during those years, we started putting a you know because uh, we had the Sunny and Cher show, so we started putting a, a show together, and we worked a bunch of places and uh, till Freeman got he got a few series and then he got tired of it. Uh, he did Dance Party and uh, did some started doing movies, and so then I was alone again and I had no no partner after the Sunny and Cher folded. And that's, did you ever do an act alone? 
Well, I started that at the uh, at at my club. Never did. I was always petrified to be on stage by myself. Petrified. Uh, uh, I think that's how I started the bag. Uh, I remember the first comic I saw in a club. Uh, you probably don't remember him because you're too young. You're just a baby yourself, right? Uh, Paul Gilbert. You remember that? You remember that name? I do, but I don't remember him. Melissa Gilbert. You know, was her dad. He was a Playboy comic, and I remember going to a club. What's and, a Playboy comic? That's uh, Playboy Circuit. You know, the Playboy Circuit. All these comics. We'll tell our audience what the Playboy Circuit. Oh, the Playboy is. Club. Yeah, the the Playboy well, how Club. How many Playboy clubs? There's are probably there? back then. There's probably like uh, maybe a, a half a dozen or ten. And there was in Chicago, in Miami, in L.A. And they do one headliner each. Yeah, that's uh, and they would have comics that would head, headline, okay, uh, headline, and and uh, and and uh, and Paul Gilbert, yeah, would work them. Who else would work them? Jackie Kelly used to work them. Uh, uh, I ended up working them years later. Uh, a couple of the Playboy clubs, one in Chicago. How much would the comic get paid for a week at the Playboy club? Oh. Three thousand, four thousand, back in those days, yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, it was, uh, it was. Uh, I probably worked them maybe five, six times. I think during those years, yeah. Mostly the the Chicago one, and I, yeah. But as Murray Langston, as the unknown comics, yeah. keep going with the Murray Langston. Oh, the Murray Langston. Oh, yeah. So, so you go back. You open your own club, but you're hosting the shows as Murray Langston. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, Freeman was with me then, and then he got tired of it, and then so I, I found myself on my own, and, uh, and, uh, but I, you know, I, as I mentioned in the club, guys like Letterman started there before he went to the comedy store, Michael Keaton, who was Michael Douglas back then, started at my club, uh, Gallagher, first place he ever worked in LA was at my club. Genius. Uh, yeah, he came in, actually, Gallagher came in with Jim Stafford, remember Jim Stafford? I don't like spiders and snakes. You don't. <laughs> That's right. And also my girl, Bill. Uh, anyway, uh, he uh, he brought Gallagher in. Gallagher, he, Jim was going to do a summer show uh, uh, for CBS, and so he brought Gallagher from Florida, who was going to be one of his writers. They were good buddies. And so he first place he worked in L.A. was uh, Jim said, I'll do some songs at your club if you put my buddy Gallagher on. And so he, I did. So anyway, that club I had for two years, and uh, it was uh, I lost my ass. All the money I made, which wasn't ever huge money, I lost in that club uh, that I'd made off of. Where was that club? On Lancashire and Victory. Got it. Okay. Yeah, you know Hollywood, right? It was right on the uh -huh. corner. It used to be a used to be a lesbian club when I bought it, and uh, and so I, in fact I used to do a joke. I said, you know, this is a tough club. It used to be a lesbian club. The, they had a pool table here with no balls, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, so uh, 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 so so yeah. So but it was uh, two very difficult years of my life. And Red Fox kept telling me he was going to be one of my 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 uh, partners, and he kept teasing me too because we were buddies back then. And he used to come down to my club and. He was making twenty grand a week, and he'd you know hand me the check and say you know cash this, and he'd go into my my office and and, and do his cocaine again back then, you know. Uh, so uh, we were good buddies. I want to know the moment that you thought, okay, I got to do something different here. I'm at an impasse. Okay, well, that's sort of what happens uh, at, at the club. I, now, the club folded. Uh, I mean, I lost my ass in it, and uh, I actually almost became partners with Bud in, in the improv because of my club. Bud Friedman. Bud Friedman. He had opened up the club, and uh, he didn't have his liquor license, and I had a liquor license. So we were almost going to make a deal where I was going to get a percentage of his club for my liquor license. And then somebody came in and ended up buying my club, so I, I, I just barely got my money back, but I could have made a fortune had I teamed up with Bud. Uh, but uh, but I didn't. So anyway, uh, uh, so anyway, that's what. So anyway, the club was closing. I was broke again. I was uh, trying to figure a way to make a living. I had no act because Freeman was doing his own thing on Dance Party, and that's when the Gong Show came about. And it had been on about six months already. This Gong Show, as you. You're aware of, and uh, I found out if you're in the union, which I'd been in, because I'd done, besides the uh, Sunny and Chair show, I was also, I did a series with Wolfman Jack, with Bobby Vinton, with Lola Flan, a bunch of other people. So I had this nice little run, uh, and uh, so, I, and uh, which was like 250, the union scale on the gong show, and uh, so, uh, uh, and I happened to know the woman who booked it. Uh, can't remember her name now because she also did the dating game and the newlywed game because those were all Chuck Barris shows. 
So I called her up. I said, hey, I, 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 you know, I could use some union money. Can you get me uh, on the gong show? You know, because uh, I'd done like two or three dating games prior to that. The gong show was a show where the whole concept of the show was these are the shittiest acts amateurs. in the world. Yeah, yeah. Come the on. amateurs of the amateurs of the amateurs. And the whole excitement of the show is to have somebody get gonged. Yeah. And so there were no professional people going on who were respected people going on the gong show other than the host yeah, and yeah, the yeah. judges. Yeah, yeah. But I'd done all these TV shows, so I said to myself, if I put a bag over my head, I go on as this comic and just tell this joke. But when you made the first call to her, yeah. were you thinking, I'm going to put a bag over my head? Oh, yeah, yeah. I had already thought about doing that on the gong show. So I asked her if I could go on, and she said, Chuck does these curtain closers where people come out and, and do something to him, and he closes a curtain on him. So she says, why don't you just come on as a curtain closer? And I told her what I wanted to do. I said, I want to do this, uh, this comic, come out and insult him. And uh, and I still remember the first joke. I You know, I finally, so they introduced me, Chuck introduced me, and... Uh, uh, so I came out, I said, hey, does the unknown comic, he introduced the unknown comic, I come out and I said, hey, Chucky baby, you and your wife ever make love in the shower? And he said, no. I said, well, you should, she loves it. And uh, the audience loved that fact that I, I insulted him, you know, and they laughed. And and I did a couple other things, I remember, but so right after the show, Chuck came running backstage. Now, I only intended on doing one show to make that two or three hundred bucks. So Chuck come running back to me, he says, hey, and he introduced himself, can you come back and do do that again? He wanted me to insult him again on, on most of the shows. And I realized- Okay, so the next show that you come back on, how many shows before you come back on again? Well, it was probably within a week uh, I did. So they used to do five shows in a day and they'd have me do either two or three of them. And so I had to continually come up with stuff, insult him in the end, most of the time, or just do ridiculous stuff. He, his, his shrewdness was, you know, he was insulting all the guests or, or, the, or the acts. And so he liked the fact that I, I gave him vulnerability by coming out and insulting him too. And so uh, that's where his shrewdness was. So I, I ended up doing 150 of the gong shows over the course of those few years, you know. For, so 150 times 300, that's, that's over $400 right there, maybe more. I still don't know where you were and what happened. You have to remember the moment where you came up with the idea. Where did you come up with the idea? I have a book in there, which I, and it's, I wrote it in there. Put a bag over your head and call yourself the unknown comic. So I, I used to make notes, and I, I actually wrote that down on a book. How long before you did it? Probably, it has to be some, probably, probably during that period. Well, you know, uh, uh, so uh, yeah, I, um, it, it, it just, who knows why the brain thing, you know, goes that way. But you know, I, to this day, I've never ever considered myself a, a comic. I'm an actor who pretends or who acts being a comic. So you're going on the gong show. Now you have to figure out what your look is going to be, what kind of bag you're putting over your head. And is it made of paper? Where are the eyes cut out? How much of the mouth is cut out? How much work did you do creating this character? You're 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 a New York guy, so you remember Arts Deli. There was a place. Of course, you remember Arts Deli? Yes, there's an Arts Deli here too. I think he finally passed. Yeah, well, no, the the guy Art. Yeah, he's the one I went to, and I I, I used to eat there all the time. So I said, Art, I'm going to do this character. I'm called the Unknown Comic. So I got my first bags from him, and he used to always tell people, yeah, the Unknown Comic got his first, which is the truth. I got my first bag from him. He gave me a bag. And, and I used that first bag, and I tried to keep that bag for as long as I could. And I know I'm asking questions that you would think are irrelevant, but I think this is fascinating to me. So you have to figure out where your eyes are, oh, how yeah. the cut is, where your mouth is. How many times did you make cuts in the bag before you made one that worked? You know, you have to understand, as I mentioned before, I only intended on doing one. So I cut the holes in the bag, and, and I smoked a cigarette. I tried to imagine myself as a 
Playboy-type comic. So I had the cigarette in my fingers. Hey, because I saw those early shows. I didn't have them later. So some of the early shows, I, I had a you know, cigarette. Hey, how you doing, everybody? I am the unknown comic, so I tried to act as being this comic. And 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 so, uh, the but the, eventually, because I, I, I had to do so many, I started thinking of, I had to think of things. You know, I, I wore a white bag over my head and called myself the unknown preacher i brought my dog literally with a bag over its entire body and said you've heard of a boxer this is a bagger i was going to name him chooser but baggers can't be choosers i still remember these stupid jokes i remember one where you had a bag on your hand the ventriloquist yeah i got my grandfather on with a wrinkle bag i saw i just was bag 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 <laughs> just thinking of all these bags so, but your outfit that you wore physically on your body i tried to imagine a uh just a <laughs> And a, 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 a typical, uh, uh, ridiculous-looking comic. You know, I had I had these short pants, which were short. Uh, uh, so I wore the pants too short, and uh, the jacket, and uh, it's just a beige jacket. And it was the same jacket and same. Hey, everybody! I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Pants, Pants and same shoes every, every show. show. Yeah, yeah, every gong show. Okay, so that's it. So that was your look. That was my classic look. Yeah. Okay. And so you're writing these jokes for the character for the first time. Do you have a friend helping you write the jokes? A lot of them are like, well, a lot of them are one-liners, just old one-liners. I'm scrounging. So they were like old jokes, old joke jokes. Books. But then I had a lot of friends that are comics, you know, I and mean, they would say, hey, Murray, you, you should try this. And so I had a lot of help because nobody else had a bag over there. And so if somebody thought of a bag thing, they would, you know, let me know. Hey, everybody, and I wanted to thank some of the sponsors on the podcast, starting with AquaTrue. If you haven't bought this countertop water purification system, you have to do so. It's incredible. It turns tap water into your favorite bottled water instantly. It saves you thousands and thousands of dollars. It gets rid of all those plastic bottles that you have in your trash. Thousands and thousands of listeners have bought these. Everybody loves it. Not one complaint. It's incredible. I haven't bought a bottle of water in years since I got this, and you won't either. And if you go right now to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, you'll immediately get a $100 discount, a $100 discount, and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had. I guarantee it. Lastly, the air doctor. I don't know what the air inside your house is like, but the air inside my house, it feels heavy at times before I got this product. And now it got rid of all the bad air in my house, the dust, the pet hair, the pollen. It just gets rid of all the contaminants circulating through your home. And for me, when I got this product, it was amazing the difference that I found in the air in my house. And it's normally $600. And you can check Amazon right now and you'll see. But for all of you listening today, I can offer you $300 off. $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com and type in the promo code Barry. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code Barry, and save $300 and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. 
All right. So how long did it take you to think about what voice you were going to use and the intonation of your voice for the character? Never. She never gave a thought to any of that. I think it just happened. Hey, I'm the unknown comic, and I just came out, and I tried to, again, picture myself as a, a comic. Hey, what are you doing? You know, and, and I would just uh, do these. Uh, and I still have that energy when I do the show. The energy is, is, is amazing that that guy has I it was it was more energy than it was material and even when I ended up working in in Vegas at the Sahara uh, you know doing my shows uh, uh, my material was really weak but my energy was so high I pushed more of most of it over through sheer energy yeah and when you had opening acts work with you like Will Schreiner was a monologist yeah he planted his feet he stood in front of the mic and he told great jokes when you followed a guy who was a great technician, yeah, was it hard to follow? That all came years later. Uh, you know, whether it was Will Schreiner, Elaine Boozler, uh, so many guys opened for me. David Spade opened for me. Uh, Kevin Nealon opened for me. Drew Carey used to always open for me. All these guys used to open for me. But back in those days, I had so much energy going, and 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 I had a you know following. So people came in to see me. They, I knew I, 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 I had no problem kicking ass for an hour back in those days, uh, because uh, I, I, I had developed a, a following. Okay, so you're doing the Gong Show. At what point in time? How many episodes in? Does a personal appearance agency come to you and say, "Hey, listen"? I think we can book this across the country. That's exactly what happened. Jack Aglash, who was the booker for the Sahara Hotels, at that time they had three, Sahara, Reno, Tahoe, and Vegas, called me up or his, and said, hey, he had, I love this character you're doing. Uh, you have to remember, I still had no act. I'd never done a comedy act as a single. So he asked me if I could do a show at the Sahara Lounge, offered me 5000 a week. How many shows a week? Oh, it was two a night and three a night on weekends. <laughs> Got it. And the Sahara Lounge, was that the 500-seater with the red booths? Uh, it was the red booths. It wasn't quite that big, as I recall. Probably about 250 to 300. Got yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And he wanted you to do an hour. He wanted me to do an hour. And then he wanted you to do it there for how many weeks and then go to Reno and then go? Uh, I'd do uh, two weeks there, two weeks in Reno, two weeks in Tahoe. So I had a, a nice contract. And it just kept rotating. Uh, I, yeah, but it wasn't continuous. I'd be two weeks at uh, Vegas and then I'd have a month off or six weeks off and then go to Reno and then have another couple months off. But it was for a couple of years. That was my learning ground, by the way. That's where I learned how to be a stand-up. Okay, so the first gig he books you in, it's your first show, presumably a Tuesday or something like yeah. that, 7 o'clock. Yeah. Do you have somebody opening up for you? No, it's just, my, well, my band. I put together a band. Got it. And they were from Vegas or from here? Because I knew, no, I, they were from here. And I had, so, so that $5,000 a week that I made, I really lost money because I had to pay a band, their rooms. I had, I had two dancers. See, I was smart enough to figure I had no act. So I hired two girls, called them the Bagettes. They put bags on their heads. I hired a band. But they were beautiful the from baggers. the neck down. Oh, yeah. And they would come out and do open the show. And then I had them do little bits in between the show. One of the dancers would run up to me while I was on stage. Hey, this guy's the father of my baby. And I'd say, you can't prove that. And then she'd pull out a, ba a doll with a bag over its head. Who yeah. wrote the first hour? Well, oh, no, it all came out of my brain, but again, a lot of it was old uh, jokes. So how long does it take you to write the act for Vegas? But the unknown comic was about 20 minutes, okay? Because you could only, I, I realized you could only stretch it for so long before an audience goes, okay, we had enough of the bag jokes. So I would do uh, 20 minutes with the bag, take off the bag, the audience would go crazy. You took off the bag. Oh, yeah. Then the, then the uh, then the, my band would play a song while I went off to my dress room and changed and then other clothes. And then I came back and I did the next 40 minutes without the bag. And uh, so my, my, you know, which is still what I do today. I do about 15 minutes of the bag when I do a show. And then I do 45 without. Yeah. I'm fascinated by this because you would think the most famous thing in the show is the unknown comic yet you made the unknown comic the opening act it's my opening act why would you do and that i kicked ass much better than the why other wouldn't comic? you close with it because then they know who i am no they don't hi my name is murray langston we're here for the unknown comic show you're gonna love it and headlining tonight is the unknown comic but before he comes out 
we're going to do <laughs> no it, it, it for some reason it just evolved like that you know but uh, yeah and then i and then it would be a challenge cuz uh, in the beginning because they just seen the unknown comic and now here's this guy without the bag make us laugh you know then it became it became tougher in the beginning the first few minutes until i got him on my side again and then, I'm blown away you didn't do it the other way and you disclosed your identity. Well, you should have been around then. You know, give me some advice. But no, you weren't there, were you, Barry? Yeah. You never had a manager? Uh, not really, no. Never had. Never even really had an agent either. Yeah. I was never a workaholic. To me, it was all fun. This is what blows me away from a business perspective, and yeah. I hope that you take this with the spirit it's no, intended. No, any, anyway, I, I... So, a month ago... I go to Las Vegas with my boys who are 13 and 14 and I take them to see a show of a comic named Tape Face who was on America's Got Very Talent. Very funny on there. Yeah, I haven't seen the show. Yeah. I liked him what I saw. So has the spiked hair, the dark makeup yeah, yeah, on yeah. his face. No, I know exactly what you're talking piece about. Of tape, yeah. The striped shirt, the yeah. jacket, the satchel, the pants and killed. But what I realized about him that we talked about is something that I realize about you. There could be tape face shows all over the world and they would succeed. Yeah, yeah. And there could be unknown comic shows simultaneously in Reno, in Vegas, in New York, all over the world with a different person doing the unknown comic. In Mexico, doing it in Spanish. That's right. Wow, now you tell me. Where were you when I needed you? You were an entrepreneur. You opened your own club. How many people opened their own club besides Red Fox back then? And I lost my ass in it. It so, doesn't yeah, matter. You opened your own yeah, club. Yeah, yeah. You were an entrepreneur. You gave starts to the greatest people in the business. Why didn't you think of being an entrepreneur with the bag? I don't know. Like I, like I said, it, it, it's all and still is just, it was just a fun ride. I was getting laid like crazy. I was having a blast. I was uh, partying with my friends. Did you ever have a... I would go to Hawaii. I'd do a gig and then take all my friends to Hawaii. And I did that on a regular basis. My band... Did my, you ever have a girl say, listen, I'll fuck you, but you have to be wearing the bag? To, no, yeah, of course. I've done all that stuff. Really? Oh, yes. I mean, <laughs> I, it was, there's nothing I haven't done. And there's, there's a lot of stories that went around Vegas uh, that about... Did you ever have a woman say, shit. put the bag over your penis? Uh, well, I have that picture. <laughs> You've seen the picture of the naked picture of Burt Reynolds pose. I did that. That was in Playgirl magazine where I had the bag over my head and the bag over my penis. And for your information, I had to fold my dick in half to get it in there, too. So it was not an easy thing. But no, I wouldn't I, know anything about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 well, the interview isn't over yet. <laughs> but but uh, no, I, I was uh, well known in Vegas for being a wild, crazy person. You remember Waylon the Madam? You ever remember? Yes, I loved Waylon the Madam. Oh, yeah. Well, see, when I worked the lounges, by the way, I used to alternate. It was always me and another comic, either Pete Barbuti or uh, 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 some of the comics of those days. Uh, uh, Jerry Van Dyke used to work the lounges. We became really close friends over the years till he passed a few years ago. Uh, but uh, so we all, and Waylon was one of those acts that, uh, uh, that we alternated with. You know, I'd do the show at it's seven, and he'd do it at nine. I'd do eleven, and he'd do a later one. And uh, one time, I was uh, coming from my dressing room. His his was on the other side, and this story went around Vegas. And Madam was hanging on a on a hanger, you know, because he was up in his room. As I and I, just as I was leaving, I saw Jack Aglash, the, uh, the 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 Booker, coming in the hallway. So I ducked into uh, you know. Uh, um, Madam's dressing room, uh, trying to think of something stupid to do, and then I saw Madam, I mean Waylon's dressing room, and saw Madam on a hanger. So I, I jumped up on a chair and put my dick in in Madam's mouth. I go, yeah, 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 and knowing that Jack was going to hear me, and he turns and walks, looks in and sees me with my dick. I, 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 oh, and I act all embarrassed, and I take my dick out of his mouth, and and Jack's laughing his ass off, and he calls up Waylon, and says, you'll never guess what I saw, Murray. You know, he had his, uh, you know, uh, dick in, in Madam's mouth, and and then, and, and Madam's going, calls me up and say, "Why did you do this, knowing that I'm around?" You know, and I said, "Well, I'll never do it again because I got splinters all over my dick." You know? <laughs> and anyway, it was, it, it was, like what I'm saying, getting at is that whole period of my life 
was so much fun for me. Uh, and I enjoyed every minute of it. Young people today, they think they have their apps, they swipe right, they swipe left. They can't believe how free women are these days. And their parents have these stories sometimes of how it wasn't that way. But when you were in Vegas, women were just as free as any oh, other yeah. time. Yeah, it was quite crazy. Uh, I had some <laughs> fabulous time. I used to use my poster, my naked poster, at the end of my show. My thing was I would you know, check out the audience, and I'd give that poster to somebody that I wanted to meet afterwards, knowing that they would wait for me to come sign it. And uh, about 50% of the time, I would score with that poster just by giving that poster at the end of the show. I had fabulous times. Dang, bags. Tell our audience your craziest holy shit moment story in the behind the scenes world of Vegas. I like I said, I had I was I was up in my room with a woman and and, and she's telling me she's on her honeymoon and uh, you're on yeah, she oh he's gambling downstairs. Literally on her honeymoon being upstairs with a but I I would uh, I would uh, I had a I was quite a quite a quite a period of my life, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And and then I had a lot of groupies that would come to every show. With bags on their heads? Yeah, I had one that uh, would show up at almost every show, and she had a, a ring, and her dad was a jeweler, jeweler and he would, she would leave rings uh, for me and would tell people that she was married to me. I mean, you, you get some pretty crazy groupies when you, you know, when you work in those kinds of places, yeah. It was, it was a pretty crazy period of my life. The biggest one-nighter financially ever did in your life what was it it was uh yeah i remember that the biggest one was the sands hotel in atlantic city it was uh, i was offered 20 grand and uh, and i remember because i used that money my parents who live in canada i found out my my mother's mortgage was sixteen thousand. i paid off her mortgage it was one of the best things i was ever able to do uh, with that uh, 20 grand you know when my agent uh, or whoever it was oh i was actually with a couple of guys at that time that wanted to manage me, but didn't last very long, and they got me that gig. But that was the biggest gig. You know, a lot of people don't realize. You know, the unknown comic. Oh, he must have made hundreds of thousands of dollars. My biggest year was '96. I made sixty-six thousand dollars. It's my biggest year. How is that possible when you're doing the Gong Show and you're getting five thousand a week doing the? Oh, there were years where, because uh, for about. A ten-year period, I had to form a corporation. So I, my corporation would make 150 to 200 grand. But when I paid my band and paid everybody off, I was making like 35, 40, 45 thousand a year. So I never. But I was never a money guy. I never. Again, that's why I was probably a lousy, uh, you know, a businessman. I I was always about enjoying my my life, and I still do to this day. My my whole goal uh, during my career has been to just enjoy myself. So when I got tired of the unknown comic, it wasn't about the money. I, I, I said, well, I'm going to do a movie. So I did a movie. I took a loan in my house. I did movies. Then I do a play. I wanted to try directing, you know, a play. So I've always done something different in my life. It was, again, uh, I never intended to become famous uh, or well-known. It was just, it was all just a fun ride for me. Yeah. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. 
All right, I want to go way, 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 way back. Take me back to where you grew up, what your family was like, what was the socioeconomic dynamic, and what was your first inspiration to getting into this crazy business? Well, it was Martin and Lewis um, movies. I came from a very small town. My dad was a cripple. Like, we were really, really so poor. So Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Yeah, and I remember sitting in Your in dad movies. was disabled. He was disabled. My mother did all the work. Uh, we were very, very poor growing up. Uh, so, But I remember being very young and sitting in those movie theaters watching Martin and Lewis going, wow. And it just, I want to get to Hollywood. All I could think, there was a movie they did called Hollywood or Bust. And I want to go to Hollywood. That's you know, I was like thirteen, fourteen years old, and uh, and and I just decided, like when I was about seventeen, well, I gotta get to Hollywood one way or the other. And I I went through a bad period. You know, I was my parents. I was I I I I was on my own since I was fifteen, and then I got into robbing apartments. And what do you mean you stuff. were on your own since you were fifteen? You said you were growing up with your parents. And... Well, my parents left Montreal, where, which is where I was raised, and they didn't want to stay there for a bunch of reasons. My dad could get a pension in New Brunswick. I was born in Nova Scotia and you know, further east, but I was raised in Montreal, so that was my home. So my parents left, and and I, I was on my own. You didn't go with them. No, I wouldn't. I refused to. You know. Uh, so where would you stay? I actually I stayed with a buddy of mine. His name was Mike Jones. I still remember. And I uh, I stayed with him and his mother, but his mother was an alcoholic. I didn't last long there. I worked for the Canadian National Railway delivering packages and uh, Canadian National Express Company and worked, for, you know, I did these jobs for a buck an hour is what you got paid back in those days. And I, 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 it didn't last long with uh, Michael that I moved in with another friend of mine named Warren Chan. We lived in this little apartment and uh, and like I said, I got in a, a bunch of, with a bad bunch of bad guys. I, I'm going to get in trouble. And I, anyway, it's all in my book, but I ended up going in the army, Canadian Army for a little while and I got discharged after a year for flat feet and, I, and then I went, oh, I can't stay here. So I crossed the border. I said, this is my chance. I crossed the border and joined the American Navy. Illegally. No, legally. I, I crossed, I went to Plattsburgh, New York where there was a you know, the enlistment and I enlisted in the Navy uh, there and they put me on an aircraft carrier. For, so the next four years I was uh, on an aircraft carrier uh, uh, in the U.S. forces. Are you funny on the ship? No, no, I was not funny at all. I was, I, I but I did get it. Managed to get in the show business when they when I first went on. They they asked me, "What do you want to do?" I was like, "I don't know." You know, I was this little eighteen year old kid, and they stuck me in the radar division, which is, uh, and I didn't know what I was doing. But I, uh, so uh, I was in there for about a year and a half, and then I went to take the the, the test to be a, a, a petty officer, and I passed it. And I was the only one in my division that passed it. And then I came back that they made a mistake. They put me into uh, the, all the material I was working with. It was intelligence. Uh, you know, you need a, a, a background clearance, and they made a mistake by putting me in there. So they wouldn't give me my uh, my, uh, my the the, the uh, promotion, and instead put me in a cleaning toilet. So I ended up going a wall back to Canada. I was gone for like a month and a half, and I. Then I went, I'll never get to Hollywood. So I came back, and then I went on the ship, and the captain went before him, and he he was up. Uh, and I told him, I said, you know, I did my job. I studied, and then all of a sudden, so anyway, he offered me any job on the on the ship or a discharge. And they had a radio and TV station on the ship. So I said, uh, uh, I said, I'll take the radio and TV station. And so I ended up having my own radio show, Murray's Musical, Murray Ground of Music, uh, on the show uh, for the last two and a half years. And I was involved with when Bob Hope came in with his uh, show. I was involved with his whole show and, and putting it together on the carrier. And so... Uh, you were involved in helping to produce the Bob Hope show and get... Well, not produce it, but it helped them put it, you know, I was in what they call special services, so that, which was where I was... Uh, 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 but I, I, it taught me about, uh, you know, uh, how to be on the radio and tell... And t I had my, we had our own little camera and I would show movies at night. I, this was before Good Morning Vietnam. I was actually Good Morning Vietnam. Uh, the movie came out several several years later, but that was my life. Was what uh, Robin Williams was in that movie, for those uh, wow. two and a half three years, yeah. And uh, and then uh, then I got out and I became part of a band. I learned how to play drums and I played drums in a band in New York. And then 
How did you learn how to play drums? Self-taught? Self-taught, yeah, yeah, yeah. So just uh, there was a, a set on the in the ship, and so I got, got a couple of guys together, and then we played in Philly. Our ship was stationed a lot in Philly. What kind of music did you play? All the. the it was really funny because I just did a. I, I loved the Rascals back then. We did the Rascals. Uh, in fact, our last song used to be "A Hard Day's Night" by the Beatles. You know, so the Beatles had already been out. Uh, but uh, the band was called the Bounty Hunters. We worked all around New York State after I got out of the military, and then I lost everything. Took a bus to Hollywood, and uh, I remember riding. You took a bus from Philadelphia. From, yeah, from New York, actually. Yeah, to, to Hollywood. To Hollywood. Now, how much money do you have in your pocket? Nothing. I had like I arrived in 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 L.A. downtown L.A. raining with uh, less than a hundred dollars in my pocket. And where were you going to stay? Uh, what I did is I got a room downtown. And I was going to look for a job, and that's so you didn't have a friend there. You... Had not a friend, not a soul. How I much know. were rooms down? Uh, back I don't then? remember. You know, like ten, fifteen dollars. I remember. I remember going out and getting a bunch of loaves of bread and a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, 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 cold cuts meat. And I said, I'm going to live off this for a couple of weeks till I figure it out. You know, and then uh, I got a job. Within a couple of weeks, I mean, I knew I was going to get a job. I always knew I was going to do something. What you know, was the job? Uh, working at Occidental Insurance Company, downtown L.A., in the computer. They, it was in the infancy of computers, but I was, uh, I had, because I left school when I was 15, too, so I only went to ninth grade. So uh, uh, I was carrying computer cards from the basement up to the computer room. Uh, these were like, you know, and they had like, that's when they had sorters and collators, you know, in the infancy of computers. And I learned how to operate the computers while I was doing that. And and once I learned how to operate all of these machinery, then I, I, I wanted to get in the business. So I went to Universal Studios and applied for a job in their computer department. So I ended up working over there. And, and what were you getting paid a week at these places? Oh, jeez, a hundred bucks, hundred and something bucks a week, maybe. Yeah. So you got your own apartment. Oh, then I got my own apartment. Once I got established- uh, How much was the apartment a month, you think? I cannot remember. That's a long time ago. You know, I'm all, I'm going to be 55 next month. <laughs> well, I would be 75, but I was sick for you 20 years. You look like you're 55. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be 75 next month. But uh, uh, so, uh, so it was, uh, so it was just- so I worked. So I worked, like I said, uh, at Universal Studios, and that's where I got on laughing. If we go back, it's when when I was working at Universal Studios, Tiny Tim made it big, and I went, "Wow, if this guy can make it, I maybe I can make it." So I, this is how innocent I was. So I called up Laughing, and I asked on the phone. On uh, I called, I said, and I asked if I could speak to the producer of Laughing. And this guy, uh, 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 George Slaughter, gets on the line. Who knew? You know, so uh, George got on the phone yeah. with you just from a cold just call. Just from a cold call. I said, I'd like to speak to the producer of Laughing. He gets on the line, and I said, Yeah, is this the producer? He says, Yeah, I said, I'm just dumb little 21 year old kid at uh, Universal. And I just was with George Slaughter about a month ago, as a matter of fact. But uh, so, I, uh, so I said, I'd like to get on your show. He says, Really, what do you do? And I said, Well, I'm working on this impression of a fork. And uh, he said, a fork. He said, uh, can you come down tomorrow? And this is exactly how it happened. And so I went back to the computer room, and uh, uh, and I was all all excited. I said, I'm, I got an addition on laughed. Where did the fork come from? I was being silly in my computer room. Did you do room. that on the ship? No, no, no. This just something. Where'd you come up with the fork? Don't know. I just I was uh, doing. I was a skinny. I was like ninety pounds, and I was with my friends. I I said I'm going to do an impression of a fork, and I just put my hands up, and did it. And then okay. I did, uh, All right. So you go there and you audition. So for I George. went and the same thing. So I and he had, well, it's not just George. He had a whole team of writers there, and they're all in this room. And I go and I said, here's my impression of a fork. And I stand there and do that, and they all just looked at me and they said, all right, thank you. And that was the only thing you did. That was the only thing I did, and. Then, and then I went went back uh, to the computer room. I thought that was a waste of time. Next day, get a call, laugh and report on Wednesday, 1 p.m. You'll be taping at you know two or something like that. What did you tell your boss at the job? Well, that's the interesting thing. I ended up getting fired from my job because of this. So I, I go on the show, and like I said, it's huge. What know. happens when you do the fork? Well, uh, Rona Martin introduced me, and Rona says, hey, I found this impressionist, and, and, and uh, the other guy says, what do you mean? Yeah, I found this guy who does an impression of a fork, and he said, where'd you find him? He said, well, I was having dinner, and he was next to my plate. You know, <laughs> he did all these, and next week he's going to come back and do his impression of a knife and stab himself with himself. <laughs> so they did all these, these jokes on me, and then they introduced me, but they gave me a couple of 
other impressions to do during the show. I did a tube of toothpaste and a grandfather clock. Okay, they wrote those they, for you. They wrote those for me. So in that first show, you did three impressions. Three impressions. Okay, which one went over the best? Well, the fork was the was the silliest, but uh, uh, I guess. And uh, and then uh, I thought I was going to be a big star. I thought this is it. Tiny Tim made it. I'm going to be. <laughs> Nothing happened. And, uh, and so one show they didn't call you back. Nobody called me back. No, I couldn't. You know, but your boss fired. Oh, well, then my boss the fired me, and I was in the union, so I had to, They made. I had them. They. I made them take me back, but then it just took a matter of time. Then I went into painting houses and selling shoes and answering phones. All these so other. So what's jobs. the next break you get? Next break was uh, basically well, it was a bunch of little things before you did this show. Laughing that first show where you did the three impressions. Yeah, yeah. You'd never been on stage in front of an audience before. Never. No, no. After that appearance, how long before you do your first thing at a nightclub? Okay. You probably remember a guy named Georgie Jessel. Yes, of course. You do. Okay. Well, he had a club. He opened a restaurant. And uh, and uh, so they were auditioning for acts for the opening. So, uh, And this is very shortly after, you know, after the laugh. And again, I'm, I'm doing all these things. And I'm trying. I have no clue how to get into this business. And. So I put together five minutes, uh, probably from Orban joke books, a bunch of one-liners. You know, obviously I, d- I did the fork or something, but I, I thought it was a cool five minutes. I went down an audition for the Georgie Jessel restaurant, and I kicked ass every line. You know, but it was just a bunch of people there, and they asked me to be at the opening of the the, the restaurant. Again, there was just there wasn't a whole lot of people in in the audition thing. It was just like maybe twenty, thirty people, but everybody just laughed at their ass off. And that was my, I went, this is easy, my first time doing it. And then so then the club opens, the club is packed, there's click lights, there's everything there, celebrities there. And, uh, and, and they, not only me, they had like about eight acts that they hired, but I was the comic. And I went on and I bombed. It was just like, they just looked at me. Probably the nerves, they, you know, I'd never done it before. And so, uh, so your first time on stage on in George front of an G. audience, Jessel. he hires you for the opening of his club, and you bomb. Bomb my ass off. What man. does he say to you backstage? Well, he didn't say anything to me backstage. You know, I don't even know that I met the guy. He was sitting there, you know. But uh, well, he introduced me. But it was uh, so. So after that, I just went. Oh, that's not for me. Then I started, like I told you earlier, I'm going to do the Martin Lewis thing. So I, I look for partners. And uh, Jack was the first guy I, I tried it with, and then Freeman, and then uh, I, you know ended up getting on the like I said the Sunny and Chair show. How do you get the Sunny and Chair show? Well, as I mentioned earlier, hanging at Red Fox's club. Now, is this before or after you started working with Cheech and Chong? Oh, that was uh, right afterwards. You know, Cheech and Chong and I were we were working this little club, and then it was right after that club folded. I went over. They started to make it big, and then I went over to the Red Fox Club and was hanging there for maybe five, six months before I got the offer to do the Sunny and How did show. that happen? Uh, 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 well, I mean, like I, I mentioned earlier, me and Freeman King, we did a bunch of these nasty sketches. And, I know, but were they in the audience or? Were well, no, they? Sue Golden. Remember the agent? Yeah. And then she And that's heard. when you did the audition you talked about oh, before. And I, and I didn't even preface that, too. If we go back, the audition, I, uh, when I went to do the audition for the Sonny and Cher show, producers Chris Beard and Alan Bly were the writers in uh, for the Laugh-In show. So when I walked in, and you, who knows if that had anything to do with it, they went, weren't you the fork on Laugh-In? Because they were writers back then. and But now they were producing Sonny and Cher's show, and they hired me. So who knew? Uh, next thing I knew is I was on the Sonny and Cher show. So it's, I've been a, I've had a very lucky run of things, even though uh, I, I, ha- I had a lot of real broke periods. And that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Aquatru, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day.
and the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next episode. I've had comics over the years ask me advice, and I always say the same thing. If you have to ask advice, you're not on the right road. You know, you just go for it. You don't ask anybody. You just got to go for it if you want it. You know, if you got what it takes, you're just, it's just going to be there, and you just, you're going to go for it, and you're going to, you're not going to ask anybody. I never asked anybody. I just did it. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.